Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Judy is a research psychologist, a PhD research science scientist in psychology who decided to get a master's degree after her PhD. I don't think that's the way it's usually done. She uh, got a master's degree in public health after a PhD in social psychology, all as part of a grand scheme of being able to do research. She became very involved in researching the psychology of coping and worked has worked throughout her career, I think, a great deal with Susan Folkman, the retiring executive director of the Osher Center, who has been an absolute pioneer in the science of coping. Judy's particular bent has been to pay attention to positive emotion and how the experience and the expression of positive emotion, she'll, she'll correct me how, if, for the parts I'm saying wrong, how the experience and the expression of positive emotion results in better, not just better emotional health, which might make sense to us, but better physical health as well. She's worked with a variety of usually fairly stressed populations. She's done some amazing research. When I looked over her bibliography, not the suggested bibliography she gave you, but the bibliography of papers and, and articles she's written, I saw somewhere north of 40 articles uh, that she's either authored or co-authored, another five uh, chapters in textbooks. Uh, I'm delighted to introduce Judy Moskowitz. Um, so tonight I'm going to talk a little bit about, I'll do a really brief overview of stress and um, how it affects our health. Um, then I'll turn to the more, the happier topic of the beneficial effects of positive emotion. And then we'll get to sort of the meat of this and what people usually want to hear is, is how do you actually increase your own positive emotions so you can cope with whatever stress you're experiencing in your life. So what is stress? Well, we all know what it feels like, right? Um, have lots of different personal definitions of stress. This is how we define it for our research purposes. Stress is the perception that something in the environment, something in the environment taxes or exceeds your resources for coping and endangers your well-being. So it's the interpretation of what's going on out there for your own personal well-being that gives rise to this feeling of stress. And when you have that perception of stress, we have um, a physiological response to that. So just really in sort of gross overall terms, your body releases epinephrine and norepinephrine. This increases your heart rate. It increases your blood pressure. You breathe faster. You might perspire. It increases the blood flow to your active muscles, gives you more muscle strength, actually increases your mental activity in the uh, short term. Uh, cortisol is also released, which helps mobilize um, the protein and fat, the, the energy for you to actually um, have some sort of physical response um, and gives you more access to that energy and actually decreases inflammation in the short term as well. And this was all very adaptive. We are f finally evolved to respond to stresses like this, physical stressors. Th that, that physiological response prepares us to run. Right or to fight. It's the fight-or-flight response. It's very adaptive in situations like a lion chasing you. 
But that's not the kind of stress most of us experience anymore. Most of us experience this stress that's in our heads. It's created by our perception that something out there, like a deadline at work, is is going to have uh, negative effects on our well-being. But this perception actually triggers this same physiological stress response. And with repeated triggering of that response, um, it it has negative effects on the body. Um, for example, it affects your immune system. You're more susceptible to colds and other viruses. Affects your cardiovascular system. It can increase your blood pressure, increase your risk of stroke and heart attack. Your respiratory system. It can exacerbate things like asthma. Affects your reproductive system and that it decreases your sexual desire. Can increase symptoms of PMS. Can and affect your fertility. Affects your endocrine system, which then has effects on your sleep. Your musculoskeletal system, back and neck pain, headaches. I mean, there's a host of negative effects of certainly chronic uh, perceptions of stress. So I want to walk you through um, one of my very favorite studies of all time. This was um, published almost 20 years ago now, but um, Sheldon Cohen was the first author on this, and this was very exciting because um, Sheldon Cohen's a psychologist, and as psychologists, we get really excited when we can get into the New England Journal of Medicine. Um, It's a rare thing. Um, But he did this fantastic study, um, just a couple of the details, because you are in medical school, so I'm going to give you some study details here and some data. Um, 420 participants, uh, a range of ages, a range of education. And what they did was they brought people in and they actually quarantined them in a large apartment complex um, uh, for two days before they were exposed to uh, rhinovirus, a cold virus, and for seven days after. So they basically brought them in, had them do a bunch of questionnaires, squirted a cold virus up their nose, and then followed them for seven days to see who had evidence of a cold. So you're all giving me the disgust face in that with that. Um, it's, it actually, it's, this is a really hard study to do these days. When you talk to Sheldon Cohen, he's done it in, in England, but it's, it's actually much harder to do it here. It's hard to get past IRBs and stuff, which I guess you can understand. But So then what they did was they, in, in those two days before they, they uh, exposed them to the cold virus, they measured the number of stressful events um, in the past year that the people perceived as having a negative impact. They asked them the degree to which their current demands exceeded their ability to cope. That goes back to that definition of stress that I gave you earlier. And also they asked them about their current negative emotions. So they put all these measures together and made up an index of stress. And then they followed them these seven days that they were still in quarantine after they were exposed to the virus and looked for evidence of infection. So they did a nasal wash to see if there was evidence of the virus there. And they also had them report symptoms of colds and had physicians examine them for evidence of colds. And they found this kind of amazing thing. I have a laser pointer, so I'm going to use this. So here, these are the percentage of subjects who came down with a cold in each group. And this is that stress index that I just talked about. And they grouped people into you know, a low score, 3 to 4, 5 to 6, 7 to 8, 9 to 10, 11 to 12. And there's this lovely linear association between the more stress that you have and the higher likelihood of actually getting a cold over those seven days and showing evidence of the cold. So they had this nice, and this is controlling for all the things that you would expect to be related to a cold, things like um, whether they'd been exposed to the cold before, they looked to see whether they had evidence of that, um, and gender and, and other, other sort of standard control variables. Um, there's also evidence, and this is a, a little bit more dire uh, example of how stress can affect you. Stress is related to a higher risk of mortality, a higher risk of death. Um, 
one of the most interesting studies that demonstrated this had three groups, uh, well, three groups of participants. They had caregivers of uh, partners with Alzheimer's, um, a control group, a sort of age-matched control, and they split the caregivers into two groups, those who were caregiving and had these caregiving demands and were distressed by it, and so they were stressed by it. They were reporting perceptions of stress related to their caregiving. And then they had caregivers who were, were had the same demands but didn't feel particularly distressed by it. And this group in red is the distressed caregivers, and this is their um, risk of mortality. I think they were followed for about five years. So those who were distressed had a much higher risk for death over the five years than even the caregivers who were not distressed, and certainly um, in comparison to the controls. So stress definitely has negative effects on our health, and that's sort of been out there, and you know, we know this. Um, so why am I talking about positive emotion? That seems kind of crazy. We know, bad, you know negative emotions and stress are bad for you, so why are we talking about positive emotions at all? And you know, it's true that the research has really been focused on the negative emotions. This makes sense. There are definitely bad effects for negative emotions and stress, and you know, it makes sense to, to study that. But there's also this um, growing evidence that positive emotions also occur when you're feeling stressed, particularly in the context of chronic stress, and that they have adaptive functions. So I'm going to walk you through some of the research that I and others have done um, that demonstrates this. So Rick had mentioned Susan Folkman, um, the, our sort of retiring director at the Osher Center. Now, when I came to UCSF to work with Susan, um, she had just started this study. Well, it was a she was a few years into this study. So this is the, what we called at the time the UCSF Coping Project. And it was a study of men caring for their partners with AIDS. And at this time, at this uh, point in the, in the history of AIDS, uh, there were not a lot of effective treatments. So HIV and AIDS was essentially a terminal illness. So we were following these caregivers. They were interviewed every other month for years, two years, some out to five years. Um, and it became a caregiving and a bereavement study. So we followed them. They were interviewed, like I said, every two months, even after their, their partner died. So we were able to follow, um, follow them through some of the most horrific stress you can possibly imagine experiencing. So um, some basics of the design. There were 314 participants. Um, we were able to look at uh, HIV status of the caregivers as well. So 86 of the caregivers had HIV themselves. So we had hypothesized that this would be the highest stress group because their partners were dying of a disease they themselves had. Um, then we had a group of 167 HIV negative caregivers, and then to compare the sort of the stress of having HIV to um, the stress of caregiving, we had a group of HIV positive non caregivers. So they didn't have the stress of caregiving, but they had the stress of having HIV themselves. And then a number of the caregivers then became bereaved, and we were able to sort of tease apart. Um, sort of as a side note, it turns out that having HIV and being a caregiver, the HIV it was not the thing that was stressful; it was the caregiving. So um, being an HIV-positive caregiver did not lead to more stress than being an HIV-negative caregiver. So it was really the caregiving that was what was stressful for the participants. So this is the slide that shows you that it's stressful to care for a partner who's dying and then have that partner die. So this is... um, scores on the CESD, which is a depressive mood scale, and um, the time scale down here, this is three months prior to the death of the partner, one month prior, here's where the death of the partner occurred, two weeks, one month, three months, six months, and seven months after the death of the partner. 
And this line at the bottom here is where the general population norm on the CESD is. So generally, in a general population sample, and not particularly stressed, the score is about 9. Our participants were up here at 20 and you know, went up to a spike of about 30 on average after the death of the partner. And we had them back in within about two weeks after the death of the partner. They were really incredible participants, and they were really attached to the study, and they, they came in and talked to us very soon after the death of the partner. On the CESD, generally a score of 16 is considered at risk for clinical depression. So they were really, you know, again, not surprisingly, distressed and depressed about um, their caregiving and the death of their partner. And it actually, although you see it coming back down here, we have data, and I don't have a slide for it here, but out three years after the death of the partner, their uh, levels of depressive mood on the CESD are still quite elevated. So, you know, there's no question that this was an incredibly stressful life event for these participants. What surprised us, though, was, um, again, Susan Folkman had the foresight to measure um, lots of things of interest, but one of the things she measured was positive affect or positive emotion as well as negative emotion. So this is on a different scale. This, like I said, the CESD is more about depressive mood. The positive and negative um, items here are more sort of in the past week, how often did you feel? And then they were given a list of sort of positive emotional type terms like happy and proud and negative emotion terms like angry and sad. Um, but they were measured separately, so we could look at them separately when they were on the same scale. So this blue line is um, the negative emotion or negative affect. And you see it, you know, it dips, it 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 sort of travels along here prior to the death of the partner and then spikes up as the partner dies and then you know gradually goes back down what surprised us was this yellow line this is positive emotion over the same time period and it's reported with about the same frequency as negative emotion with the exception of this period right around the time of the death of the partner again as you would expect but what we didn't expect was to see positive emotion up quite this high so we talk about this as the co-occurrence of positive and negative emotion under conditions of stress so what our participants were telling us is that even though they were distressed and depressed they also had moments of positive emotion and they actually had had told us this in, in some of the qualitative interviews as part of the study so um, we started thinking that there might be something important here that we should pay attention to. Maybe there's something about being able to have positive emotion, even in the context of stress, that helps you cope better with that stress. Um, based on, on that finding from that study and um, some other findings that were um, being reported in the literature, I was fortunate enough to be funded to do a study of my own um, this is, you'll see, I'm, I'm very fond of acronyms for my studies. I think that's like the most important thing. First you name the study, and then you write the grant. And it really is. So CHI stands for Coping HIV and Affect Interview Study. And yes, the name came to me while standing in line at Starbucks. It's true. But it's great. It's a great name, and it means, you know, life in Hebrew, and it's great. So anyway, um, so uh, I was funded to do this study, and it's a longitudinal study, um, an observational study of people newly diagnosed with HIV. Um, and again, this, this time, it's, um, and it, we started in December 2003, so post-protease inhibitors, post-more um, effective uh, treatments for HIV. So it's no longer an imminently terminal illness. So it's more of a chronic illness, but still stressful. And the main aim of that study, sort of in a nutshell, was to document the occurrence 
predictors and correlates of positive affect in a sample of people newly diagnosed with HIV. So what I wanted to see was that um, among people who are experiencing a serious life stressor being diagnosed with a serious illness, did we still see this co-occurrence of positive and negative affect? And did the positive affect or positive emotion predict more adaptive outcomes? So Again, just briefly, 160, we were able to uh, recruit 160 people who were newly diagnosed with HIV. We interviewed them a lot, um, one, two, three, six, nine, 12, and 18 months after diagnosis, because we were really interested in capturing sort of the pattern of their emotional adaptation to um, the diagnosis. Uh, We do really in-depth interviews, face-to-face, one-on-one with an interviewer. Um, And then we get, you know, CD4 and viral load at one, nine, and 18 months to look at physical health. Um, we ended up with a sample that's, you know, this is typical for the San Francisco Bay Area, 89% male, 68% identify as gay or bisexual, the average age is 38, about half were white, 78% were born in the United States. We were able to get them in for their entry interview within about six weeks of testing positive, which is actually quite a feat, and I'm, I'm very proud of that, actually. Um, so here's the, a similar slide to the one I showed you of the caregivers. This is the CESD again, so the depressive mood scale. Here's the general population norm. Um, and these are their, the scores from the CHI participants um, at baseline. So this is within about six weeks of testing positive. So they're way up at 20. And remember, 16 is considered at risk for clinical depression. So they're up at 20. Um, it, it drifts back down, gets to about, this is about 13 um, after 18 months. Um, but it's still still elevated. So again, this shows you that testing positive for HIV is a stressful event for most people on average. Um, and here's the slide about positive and negative emotion. Um, negative emotion, again, it's sort of higher right after they're diagnosed and it, it drifts down. But positive emotion is higher um, throughout the entire study. It's more frequent than negative emotion in the past week. So we're showing this co-occurrence again. But lest you think that there's something weird about this sample, that they're also they're happy even though they have HIV, this dotted line up here is um, the levels of positive emotion from the same scale. In, uh, we call it sort of a comparison group. It's actually a group of um, computer company workers in Michigan. But I think that's a reasonable, it's, it's a reasonable comparison. Um, but there, so that's what you would expect, sort of more general population like. So the, you know, in the, in the, the Chai study, the participants are, they, they have higher positive than negative emotion, but it's still dampened down, sort of again, reflecting the stress of, of the experience that they're going through. Now, this co-occurrence has been shown in several other samples now, too. Um, Again, Susan and I did a study of maternal caregivers of kids with really serious chronic illnesses, and we found the co-occurrence there. Other people have shown it as well. It's not just something that Susan and I managed to dig out of our data. Um, People have found it in bereaved spouses, you know, students experiencing college stress, and it goes on and on. It's basically, if the researchers think to measure positive emotion, they'll find this co-occurrence among stressed samples. Um, yeah, so what? <laughs> what well, positive emotion makes you feel good? You know, what else? Um, well, it's actually related to better physical health. Um, and let me tell you about that. So here's our friend Sheldon Cohen again. So he, you know, got on the positive emotion bandwagon and did his cold study um, again. This one was published in 2006, just a couple years ago. And um, 
similar design, you know, 193 people, a range of ages. This time the quarantine, you know, the details of the study are slightly different, but again, brought them in, quarantined them for a day before and five or six days after and gave them a viral challenge. So actually, you know, squirted a cold virus or a flu virus up their noses. Um, one of the really neat outcome variables, and I think he's done this in both studies, was um, they actually collect the participants' um, Kleenexes, used Kleenexes, and then they weigh them. <laughs> it's a neat, I, you know, I love creative research like that. So they measured um, positive emotion. They measured negative emotion as well, but they, they again, they thought to ask about positive emotion this time. Um, they uh, did phone interviews with people for two weeks prior to coming into the study, and they asked them, you know, today... How much did you feel lively, full of pep, happy, cheerful, at ease, calm? But also ask them the negative emotions, sad, unhappy, on edge, tense, hostile, angry. And then they averaged those um, positive and negative emotion um, responses separately. And then they looked to see who had evidence of a clinical cold um, once there. And here's this nice pattern again. So they, they you know, just grouped the positive emotion into these thirds, tertiles, and looked at you know, the percentage of people in each of the, these groups who came down with a cold um, as a result. And those with low positive emotion, over 40% showed evidence of a cold. And those in the highest, and this is the two weeks before they were injected with the, the virus, um, before they were exposed to it, um, about 27% of those in the highest tertile um, came down with a cold after the fact. And this is the wrong citation. It's 2006. Yeah? Well, it's... Um, well, we're not, you're not really doing any kind of an intervention with them, so the control group would be... Certain. Everybody was injected with a cold. Everyone was exposed to the cold virus, right? And then the outcome variable was whether they showed evidence of the clinical cold on a number of things, like you know, weight of tissues and symptoms, and they looked for evidence of the virus in the nasal wash. So they did. This is, is controlling for negative emotion. Negative emotion was not related to whether they got a cold, which was interesting in this study. So they didn't find sort of the stress effect, but they did find this positive emotion effect. The negative emotion piece? Yeah. So they also, you know how I said they also measured negative emotion? Negative emotion was not related to whether, um, like if you had graphed ne- the negative emotion and the percentage of septic coals, the relationship wasn't there. Yeah. So, and, and you also statistically, if you control for um, the amount of negative emotion among these groups, it doesn't um, get rid of the effect. So it's actually kind of an important point when you're studying emotion, positive emotion and negative emotion, because although you can experience both and they're not perfectly negatively correlated, um, you still need to show that, certainly for the critics, you need to show that it's not just that people high in positive emotion have low negative emotion. So it's not just the absence of negative emotion that's going on here. It is something about the presence of positive emotion. Okay. Yeah, I see a cut here. So, um, in the, in the um, 1991 study, you talked yeah. about psychological stress. Mm-hmm. Is that one? Um, how is that different from yeah. the negative one? Yeah, they, well, it was a different measure. They used a different measure in this one, so I'm not sure. Um, I should I should look back at the details of the study and see how they describe it in their discussion and how they sort of explain that finding. Um, but yeah, they didn't. They didn't measure the. They don't, or at least they don't report the stress variable in this study where they had positive emotion. So, I'm not sure. Yeah. 
Okay. Somebody's incredibly depressed yeah. on the brain. And yet sometime during the day they're having this wonderful high. Mm-hmm. They're less likely to get cold? Uh yes. Yeah. So this is yeah, well this is I mean this is my sort of the, how how I would extrapolate from those data. Generally if someone's incredibly depressed they're not going to have those positive emotions, right? So it's more that, I mean, the data that I'm showing you is people are, they're stressed and they've got high elevated levels of depression, but they're not necessarily in the clinically depressed range, you know, the the range where you can't get out of bed, right? Um, So it's more about sort of, so I usually talk about it sort of on, um, in terms of emotional experience level, that you can be experiencing lots of negative emotions, because of the stressful events you're experiencing, but there's also the possibility for positive emotions, so that co-occurrence can happen. Okay. Is there another? Yeah. Is there any taking into account whether a person is more or less emotional? Just in terms of how much they report, like so the, the people who report a lot of positive emotion, but also report a lot of negative emotion. Well, no. Just in, are we are we considering everybody equally yeah. emotional? Versus, 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 I'm sorry, I didn't hear what you said. Versus, like, I think he means, like, analytical or similar. Well, I mean, this is, it's hard to say. So it's, you know, we, we put these questionnaires in front of them, and then we say, how much did you feel this emotion in the past week? So it's just looking at that. And so we go on what, what they're reporting. So, I mean, there's probably a gap between what they're reporting and what they might actually be experiencing, but that's more of a measurement issue. You say, I'm not, I know I'm not answering your question at all. But it just, it just to me occurs that there, the question comes up that it may be that some people are just more prone to being emotional about <laughs> everything right. than others. Right. But is that then, uh, then I would say that you know, as long as they have the tendency to experience, even at the higher levels, the positive emotion, then they should have these beneficial effects I would hypothesize but that's a good question okay is, is this used in treatment in some way like to show that you know okay, you have these negative emotions but if you have a positive emotion if you focus on that then you can get out of that mm-hmm. it's very hard to get rid of the negative yes you have just foreshadowed the rest of my talk it's fantastic did you read ahead yeah that's exactly that's exactly where I go with this yeah um, so other, um, other data have shown that positive emotion is actually related to lower risk of mortality. So um, we've seen it in people with HIV and AIDS. That's, that study was actually uh, before the more effective treatments. So I'm not convinced that that effect still holds, but you know, anyway. It also shows up in people with diabetes. It shows up in, in healthy samples as well. Um, I'll show you the diabetes data really quickly. Um, So the question I was trying to answer here was among people with diabetes, so looking at a different disease, getting away from HIV a little bit, is positive affect or positive emotion predictive of mortality independent of the influence of negative, right? So again, I'm sort of looking at this positive and negative um, co-occurrence, so I look at both of them together. Um, And then I went sort of a step further and looked at whether particular positive emotions were more strongly associated with mortality than others. So I took advantage of a really large data set that's publicly available if anyone is interested in analyzing their own data. Um, 
and there were um, 715 participants who responded, so it's self-report. They responded yes to the question, has a doctor ever told you that you have diabetes or sugar diabetes? So there was a group of people who said yes to this question. And then um, here's the CESD again, that depressive mood scale that I talked about earlier. And one of the nice things about the CESD, one, it's really widely used and widely used in big samples like this NHANES data I'm talking about. Um, It has four subscales, and it has a positive affect subscale. And the items on that are, um, and again, this is usually asked over the past week, I felt just as good as other people, I felt hopeful about the future, I was happy, and I enjoyed life. So usually that scale is sort of scored and then reversed and add it in with all the negative to get a negative scale. But you can look at it separately, which is what I did. Um, so when you look at, just you can't really see the yellow here, but just look at these p-values. I like to talk in p-values. Some people like hazard ratios, but let's go with the p-values for now. So the somatic items, which are sort of physical symptoms items, are at, at baseline among the people who report that they have diabetes. That is related to a higher uh, likelihood of mortality over the course of the follow-up of the study, which I believe we had about 10 years. Um, Negative affect, so the negative emotion items on the CESD, is sort of marginally related to a higher risk. The interpersonal items, which are sort of like, I felt like people liked me, are not really related, just sort of marginal. But the positive affect is actually here protective. So the positive affect subscale of the CESD is related to a lower risk of mortality in these data of people who self-report diabetes. And then when I took it a step farther, and this, well, I'll say that in the next slide, but when I took it a step farther and looked at the individual items, it was actually happy and I enjoyed life that really were sort of driving this effect. So people who said, yes, in the past week, I enjoyed life, were more likely to be alive 10 years later. This is, again, sort of statistically controlling for the negative emotion and the other scales on the CESD. So it appears that the, you know, although, you know, I gave you some data showing that stress and negative emotion is related to mortality, it appears, at least in these samples, that actually it's the positive emotion that's the stronger predictor here of being protective um, um, for mortality. Um, And the the one big thing, so... um, when we controlled for all the other things, the, the, the entire subscale went just below the significance line for me. Um, but enjoyed life remained significant. So it really something about that enjoyed life item really seemed to stand out. Um, and then here's my second favorite. Well, this might be my first favorite. The cold studies are my second. This is my first. You've all probably heard something about the nun study. This is actually, it's a huge study. They have um, a couple of uh, convents in the Midwest where the nuns have signed up, and it's um, the overall study is looking at um, Alzheimer's and cognitive impairments, and then the nuns have donated their brains upon death. So they, they measure them up to, you know, whenever they die on cognitive abilities and look at that, and then they match that up with sort of brain shrinkage after they die and finding some interesting things. But as part of that study, they were able to access um, some handwritten autobiographies of the nuns when they were entering the convent at 22 years old. So they had, in the sample, 180 nuns, um, and they're sort of basically one-page narrative of their life up to that point entering the convent. And the researchers then scored that for sort of emotional content. So they looked at sort of positive emotion sentences and negative emotion sentences and then related that to survival decades later. So they, you know, survived to like 75 to 95 and they, so it's from the time they were 22 till they were 
well into their 80s mostly. So let me give you a couple examples. So this one is, um, they call it low positive emotion. It's actually low emotion. Um, so I was born on September 26, 1909, the eldest of seven children, five girls and two boys. My candidate year was spent in the mother house teaching chemistry and second year Latin at Notre Dame Institute. With God's grace, I intend to do my best for our order for the spread of religion and my personal sanctification. So there's, really, there's not a lot of emotion terms in there at all. Here's the high positive emotion one. God started my life off well by bestowing upon me a grace of inestimable value. The past year, which I have spent as a candidate studying at Notre Dame College, has been a very happy one. Now I look forward with eager joy to receiving the holy habit of Our Lady into a life of union with love divine. So this is just full of positive emotions. So when they looked at the the relationship between number of positive emotion sentences and... um, likelihood of mortality, the, po- those, the positive emotion sentences actually predicted a significantly lower risk of mortality. Negative emotion sentences were not related to mor- mortality. Whether they had emotion or not in their sentences were not related to mortality. They controlled for things like um, verbal production, verbal fluency, which has sometimes been found to be related to, to mortality. So it really, again, seemed to be sort of the emotional content, sort of that what these women sort of naturally produced in their narratives that predicted um, whether or not they were alive in the, into their 70s and 80s. It's a great study. So, so I've been talking about the health effects. There are actually lots of other beneficial effects of positive emotion, too, in case you need more convincing. Um, people who have higher positive emotion tend to be more successful at work um, and do quite higher quality of work. And it's not, and they've been able to sort of tease apart in the studies what comes first. So you would think that if you do good work, you're happier, right? But they actually look at people who are happier then tend to go on and do better work. Um, if you have more positive emotion, you're a better problem solver. You're better at integrating information. You're a better decision maker. Um, you make more money. And you have better social relationships, including marriage. Um, another study that was done um, on the um, uh, a yearbook from Mills College... So several, like maybe in the 60s, that some researchers looked at the pictures from the yearbook and coded whether or not the women were showing true smiles. And the true smiles are the ones that wrinkle the corners of your eyes, so that's for the real thing. And then they related whether they were showing true smiles, which they were taking of an index of happiness. It's crude, but um, it actually worked. Um, so the women who had showed true smiles in their yearbook um, actually were more likely to be um, married decades later and to have better social relationships. So uh, Lubomirsky, King, and Diener. This is a, um, or Harker and Keltner. Which one? Oh, it's not a, it's probably not on the list that I gave you. Yeah. Okay. Which one? The Lubomirsky one or the, the, the Harker? This one, yeah. So this is a, um, I can tell, it's in Psychological Bulletin. It was a review they did in Psychological Bulletin is the name of that. It's a huge paper where they review all the evidence for the sort of beneficial effects of positive emotion. It's good. Dense, but good. Okay. So after, you know, looking at these studies and um, looking at the, the some of my own work, it, it really became clear to me a couple things. First, positive emotion occurs with negative emotion in the context of stress and is responsive to the context. So it's not just that people are sort of dispositionally happy and they stay dispositionally happy throughout whatever stress they're experiencing because we see it move around depending on what the stress, the life stress that's going on. Um, so it's there's something about um, positive emotion that allows it to sort of, it is responsive to the context, but it also occurs, and um, we see it occur naturally in in folks. 
positive emotion in the context of health-related stress and other kinds of stress as well has beneficial effects independent of negative emotion, right? So this is what I was talking about. It's important to also control for negative emotion. So it's not just that people high in positive emotion lack negative emotion. That's not it. There's something about the positive emotion itself that seems to be driving this effect. Um, And then it became clear to me, even though I'm not a clinical psychologist and I have never done an intervention in my life, um, that this is what needed to be the next step. I needed to create an intervention, create something to help people who are experiencing stress um, experience more positive emotion, even in the context of that stress. so, yeah, how do you do that? I mean, I, you know, again, I'm not a clinician, and the clinicians I talk to, uh, the training for clinician, clinical psychologists is really all about reducing the negative. It's about, you know, helping people not be depressed and not be anxious and not be fearful and not have post-traumatic stress. But no one really focuses on increasing the positive emotion and while still sort of honoring the negative emotions that naturally occur in the response to stress. So, you know, I put some thought into it, and I thought, you know, how do you make people feel more positive emotion? Well, you know, I could do, are you feeling happier looking at puppies? Or, you know, maybe you're a cat person and kittens do it for you. This does it for me. Cute babies, you know, or baby seals or beaches, or maybe you like unicorns and rainbows. I mean, it's really, this kind of thing really isn't going to have any kind of lasting impact, I don't think. So what I did as a scientist is I went to the literature and I looked for skills and behaviors and practices that actually had data suggesting that they could increase positive emotion. So, and there, you know, there's a, there's a growing literature on this. Um, so here's what I came up with, and I'm going to go through these one by one so you don't have to worry about writing them down. And they'll give you the evidence that, um, that I saw for each of these. So the first one is about noticing positive events in your life. So it's been known for a long time that positive life events are associated with increases in positive emotion, right? No kidding. Something good happens to you, you feel happier. That's not a surprise. But even seemingly minor events can have an impact. The key is to note when they happen. So I think particularly in the context of serious stress, if you're providing care for a partner who's dying, you're going to feel a lot of negative emotion. And that, you know, again, evolutionarily, negative emotion focuses your attention on, on the problem. So you tend to narrow your focus, and it's all about the negative emotion. But, you know, there might be some good things going on out here that you aren't seeing. So the trick is to be able to see the good things that are happening. Even tiny things. I always use the good cup of coffee example, but this is actually one that we hear from our participants. So, you know, a good cup of coffee and getting out the door on time. You know, there can be minor things. Your bus coming on time. It's not raining today. You know, I wasn't on the Bay Bridge when the big chunk of metal fell. I mean, there are, there are minor, you know, I can, do, I can actually do this for anything, but um, it can be little things. And, and we heard this from our participants experienced serious stress when we asked them, was there something good that happened in the past week? And they you know, first they looked at us maybe like we were a little strange for asking the question, but they often came up with something, and it was often something really minor, but it helped them, right? So it may not be enough just to notice the positive events. Um, it, It may be important to sort of talk about those events or do what we call capitalizing on them or savoring them. So capitalizing is this expressive response to positive events. It's telling someone about it. It's celebrating. It's thinking about it later on. It's writing it in your diary. Because when you do, when you think about it again, when you tell someone about it, you get that hit of positive emotion. And my hypothesis is that then you get all those you know, physiological beneficial effects of positive emotion again. So you experience it again. 
um, it makes the, the effect of positive events even stronger. So they've actually done studies where they've had people assign them to then savor it or capitalize on a positive event, and then they have even more positive emotion. And these are the folks who have done that work. So is this like imprinting an idea within one's nervous system? I don't know if there's evidence for that. I think you could probably think about it that way. Um, I think some people talk about sort of forming those connections in the brain or, you know, I'm, I, I don't know that we know that. I think it's possible, but I, I think of it more as, you know, um, I, I usually go to sort of the emotion experience level. So today I had a positive event happen and I felt good when it happened. And then six hours later I go home and tell my husband about it. And when I tell him about it, I feel good about it again. So it's um, more about sort of the... Um, the emotional experience. I'm not sure about imprinting. Question. I guess it's possible. But, okay. Then there's gratitude, and this is one. You know, we've all heard this. We've all seen it in the pop psychology shelves in the bookstore. I was a little leery of this because, I mean, contrary to how I present myself, I'm, I'm a bit of a cynic, and I, I was worried that gratitude might be a little too religious, and I didn't want to tell my participants that they had to find religion and be grateful. But there's actually a lot of evidence showing that this works. So um, we define gratitude as a feeling of thankfulness and appreciation expressed toward others. It can be toward God, but it can also be other people, nature in general. And keeping a gratitude journal is associated with increased positive emotion, fewer physical symptoms, better sleep quality, and greater satisfaction with life. And it's not just in college students where psychologists get most of our data. It's also in people with really serious illnesses. It's in Vietnam War vets with PTSD. They've done it in schools now. There's actually this huge literature growing showing that keeping a gratitude journal actually is related to sort of lasting um, increases in positive emotion. Right. And Bob Emmons, who's at uh, UC Davis, is the one who's done a lot of this work. Okay. Then um, we, uh, I'm, I'm giving you all these skills, and I'm actually uh, foreshadowing a little bit. I'm doing a study now. I'm doing a clinical trial where we're testing these skills. So we do have, at the OSHA Center, we have a big program in mindfulness and mindfulness-based stress reduction. And when I was putting this together, I talked to our director of research, and he said, you've got to put mindfulness in here. You've got to put mindfulness in here. And I was, again, I was a little unsure because mindfulness is more about, um, well, here's the definition. It's the ability to intentionally pay attention to and maintain non-judgmental awareness of one's experience in the present moment. There's nothing there about positive emotion. It's not about mindfulness as being happy. It's, being, it's paying attention to whatever you're experiencing. So you can actually notice negative emotions, too. So I was a little concerned about this. But there's good evidence now showing that interventions to increase mindfulness are associated with increased positive emotion, decreased depression, and better physical health. So it's sort of once you get over that first hump of experiencing all your emotions, you tend to go in a more, in a more positive direction. And these are the, John Kabat-Zinn is sort of the founder of mindfulness-based stress reduction. Positive reappraisal. So remember in the beginning of this talk, I talked about the definition of stress, and it had to do with your appraisal of the significance of an event for your well-being. So your appraisal or your interpretation of any event is what determines your emotional response. So when you interpret something as being a potential threat to you, you're going to have a negative emotion. Um, now, when you reappraise something, 
it's a way of sort of reinterpreting the event in a more positive way. So it's um, seeing the silver lining. It's making lemons, uh, lemonade out of lemons. It's seeing something, seeing a way that an event could have been worse and it wasn't. So, well, this could have been much worse. I mean, it was bad, but it could have been much worse as a positive reappraisal. Um, I actually, you know, I'm a better person now is something you hear. You hear people um, talk about this as sort of stress-related growth sometimes on a bigger scale. We tend to keep it really small for our participants. Um, we don't ask them to reappraise sort of their crappy childhood. We ask them to reappraise that the bus was late or they lost their keys because um, it's sort of a skill you develop. So again, the idea is that you know any given event can be appraised in a lot of different ways, and some of that is under your control. right? So your initial appraisal might be that it's bad for you, and then when you reappraise it, you can maybe find something that's not quite as negative in it. Okay. Then there's uh, focusing on personal strength is sort of a self-affirmation. So this is, I don't know how many of you know the Stuart Smalley thing from Saturday Night Live, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. There's actually something to that. There's some evidence showing that doing these sort of self-affirmations, as new agey as they seem, um, it's associated with more positive emotions. So in sort of laboratory studies where they bring people in and they give them failure feedback, um, and in one particular study it was students and they brought them in and gave them feedback that their IQ was really low. <laughs> and then they, they're so mean to students. And then, um, and then they're given a, a, a way to affirm sort of their own personal values and they have more positive emotion as a result compared to people who don't get to do that affirmation. So... Um, there is some evidence that that works. The next skill that we focus on is attainable goals. So this is just the, you know, making a list of things and how you, you know, how you feel good when you check it off your list. So this, the, the trick there is to set goals that are um, that you can actually do, but aren't so easy that you can, you know, there's no challenge there. So it's it's about. Um, uh, finding things that are sort of at the right level of challenge. So don't you know wake up tomorrow and say, I'm going to find the cure for cancer today. Because you're not going to be able to cross that off your list tomorrow. But maybe, you know, well, today I'm going to get the application for that um, class that I want to take. You know, sort of these steps that are maybe a little bit challenging, but not so challenging that you can't do it. Um, and our, our facilitators work with our participants to help them set the right goals. So, you know, the bottom line here is, you know, make a list. And then finally, um, the last skill we focus on is acts of kindness. Because up to this point, all the skills are very me-focused, very focused on the participant themselves. But there's actually, again, a lot of literature now showing that people who do things for other people are happier and actually healthier and live longer, too. Um, so the volunteerism and other altruistic behaviors are associated with lower risk of mortality and a lower risk of serious illness. Spending money on others is associated with greater happiness than spending money on oneself. There's a great study done, um, it was published in 2008, where they, they brought in people, I think it was just general community members, um, and measured their happiness at the beginning of the day. And then they randomly assigned them, um, they gave everybody $20, and then they randomly assigned them to either go out and spend that $20 on someone else or spend that $20 on themselves that day. They could spend it on anything, but it had to be either themselves or someone else. And at the end of the day, they measured changes in happiness to see how happy they were at the end of the day. And the people who spent their money on someone else were happier than the people who spent their money on themselves. So it's, it's a small thing. And it didn't matter. They also did a condition where they only got $5. So even $5 worked. So it's a, you know, there's actually, again, quite a bit of this is sort of that pay it forward, random acts of kindness idea that has um, some empirical support behind it. 
So I, you know, decided I had to do an intervention. I went to the literature. I pulled a bunch of stuff that looked like it would be related to higher positive emotion. And then I put it together into a package and I pilot tested it. And here's my second acronym, IRIS. So it stands for intervention for those recently informed of their seropositive status. So I did it again in people with HIV. Um, I've, I've been trying to keep a whole flower theme now with my studies, but I, I wrote the I wrote the Dahlia study, but it didn't get funded. So I, you know, I need I'm I'm working on it. I've got another one I'm working on um, kids in schools and trying to come up with a good sort of flower theme, but I, it, it isn't working. And my my research team spends a lot of time trying to come up with acronyms. So, the pilot study for this was founded by the Mount Zion Health Fund. I have to acknowledge that it was immensely helpful. When we were doing the pilot, we were actually calling it Puppies in Sunshine, but that we didn't think would work for the NIH, so we came up with something a little more, you know, serious sounding. So what we did was we took participants from the CHI study, or we recruited participants from the same recruitment mechanisms. Um, so again, it was people newly diagnosed with HIV. And oop, that's all I have to tell you about that. Um, and we recruited them into the study, and then we put them through these, taught them these eight, there eight skills that I listed there. Um, and this is sort of an important point for me, and I'll come back to this again later because there's been a lot in the news lately about this sort of positive thinking stuff, but we acknowledge to our participants that testing positive for HIV is stressful, and I think that's really important because we aren't saying just, if you would just be happier, you'd be fine. Just don't worry, you've got HIV, big deal. You know, you, you know lots of bad things happen to people. Just be happy and you'll be fine. We don't do that. We, t- we acknowledge that it's stressful and that it's hard. And this is not Pollyanna. Um, instead, we really we tell them, you know, the response to stress is really complex but, and includes positive as well as negative emotions. So what we're trying to do here is help them make space for the positive emotions alongside of their negative emotions that are very natural and probably adaptive in many ways. So this is how we group the skills. Session one, we talk about positive events, capitalizing gratitude. Then in the second session, we talk about mindfulness, uh, positive reappraisal, personal strengths and attainable goals, and acts of kindness. So we do five approximately weekly sessions, one-on-one with the facilitator. Um, And the the one-on-one versus group format is not... Um, it's, I mean, it is a big deal. I, I don't necessarily think that this intervention has to be done one-on-one, um, but with people who are newly diagnosed with HIV, I do think it has to be done one-on-one. There's a lot of stigma. There's a lot of um, shame. Um, a lot of people aren't out about their status to other people, so just having it one-on-one makes a big difference. There's also sometimes some cognitive issues, and, and doing it one-on-one, we are able to sort of, the facilitator can explain things in different ways to make sure that that person gets it and doesn't get sort of lost in the group. What's the difference between formal and Informal mind. Oh, you're reading my slides very carefully. Formal mindfulness, uh, the way we teach it for, for this intervention is um, a guided breathing meditation. So it's uh, mindful breathing. So we have them focus on their breath for 10 minutes a day, and we give them a CD to do that. Informal mindfulness is sort of mindfulness as you go about your daily activities. So it's sort of doing one thing at a time. So when you're driving your car, just drive your car. Don't drive your car and put your makeup on and change the radio and talk to on your phone. You know, So it's basically focusing on one thing at a time and being mindful of that and being aware of what's happening in that moment rather than also you know, not thinking about what just happened 10 minutes ago or what's going to happen in the future. You know, we talk about rehearsing and rehashing. You shouldn't just be in the moment. So that's the more informal type of mindfulness. Yeah. 
So the sessions are structured. They're six, uh, well, they're actually running a little shorter than 60 minutes. Um, individual, facilitator-guided. We give them a little bit of background about what we're doing, um, teach them the skill, and then they practice the skill with the facilitator. And then they have home practice. We call it home practice because that's much more palatable than homework. Um, and they then go home and practice that skill for the week. Um, and then we do baselines for the um, for the pilot study. We did a baseline assessment, an assessment after the intervention, which was about six weeks from the start. And then 30 days later, we called them again and did another assessment. So we measured positive and negative emotion, depressive mood, and mindfulness also, since we had this mindfulness component. Um, we were able to recruit 11 people into this pilot study. They were about eight and a half weeks post-diagnosis. Ten of them completed all five sessions. This is actually really good retention. Um, I know it's a small sample, but that another one of the nice things about a positive affect intervention is that people like it. <laughs> they want to stay in it. So um, we were really happy with the retention. So uh, another nice thing about this pilot study, it didn't have a control group. It was just a pilot to see sort of more feasibility kind of things. But I had data from the CHI study showing where you would expect maybe normatively people to be on positive emotion at week eight. So remember I said that for Iris, for the pilot, uh, people were about eight and a half weeks post-diagnosis. So I went back to the CHI data, and I looked at where people who had done an interview at about week eight were on positive emotion. And then here's the, you know, five weeks later where they were on positive emotion again in Chai for comparison. So our iris participants came in slightly lower than the Chai participants, but they had this much bigger increase to week 13. Um, now, you know, there are a lot of weaknesses in this. It's a pilot study. It's tiny. Um, but it was enough to convince NIH that this was worth doing. So other effects, uh, the CESD depression decreased significantly. Negative affect on our, our emotion scale decreased significantly. Um, interesting with mindfulness, and for people who know about mindfulness, and I'm looking at Rick, um, it increased marginally over the six weeks. We had we mindfulness training came in like the second week, and then we had them continue to practice through the rest of the six weeks. So it wasn't just a one-time thing. We had them continue to practice. Um, it increased just marginally from pre to post, but then when we called them at the 30-day follow-up, it had continued to increase, and it was the only one of our variables that did that. So I think people who know about mindfulness get very excited about this finding because I guess this is common. So. Um, just to tell you what the participants had to say about this. This is a great study to be involved in. Help me see my life in a larger sense. I'm really doing well. It's like collecting pennies under your sofa, but then the whole jar fills up and you realize you have a lot more than you thought. This is the same thing. There are many more positive things in my life than I realized. And here's the one that always gets me. This sort of makes me feel like my work is, I can stop now because it really worked. Um, it's good for people dealing with HIV because there's a lot of shame and doubt. It's a time in your life when you can potentially really cut yourself down. So the intervention was a really important exercise. Exercise. It helps you discover yourself, not to be so self-absorbed and drowning in the depression. It draws you out of your slump, makes you look at yourself from a different angle, and validates who you are and the importance of what you are and what you are doing in the world. The HIV, that's in my life, but these positive things are also in my life as well. Which, like, I mean, she, this incredibly verbal participant who gave me this great quote that I use every time I talk about it. Um, so based on those data um, and the CHI data and the other, other data that I talked about, um, we were funded uh, by NIMH to actually conduct a randomized trial, which I never thought I would be doing. Um, and we are just, we are about a year into recruitment of that. Um, and that study does have a control group, an attention-matched control group, where people come in and have one-on-one -on -one the same amount of time with the facilitator, but they're just doing interviews. They aren't learning skills. So we'll see if, if it's just, maybe just spending time with the facilitator makes you happier and has all these adaptive effects. And 
you know, then my study wouldn't have turned out the way I hypothesized, but I'd have another intervention that would work, so I'd be happy with that. So, uh, you know, I've been talking about HIV, I've been talking about serious illnesses, I've been talking about all kinds of stress. Maybe this doesn't seem like it has anything to do with you. Well, let me just talk about that a little bit. Um, I truly believe that these skills and the basic idea of the benefits of positive emotion apply across type and severity of stress. So you don't have to be going through a major life stressor. I think this works with daily stress as well. It really, um, I'm, I'm convinced. I don't have the data yet, but I'm, I'm working on it. Um, so I think it can apply no matter what kind of stress you're experiencing. Um, these are not the magical eight skills that lead to greater happiness. They're, like I said, you saw how I got it. I got these individual things. I pulled them from the literature. They don't have to be taken as a package. And in fact, I think what's important here is the fit. So I'm not expecting that anyone going through this intervention is going to take up all these eight skills and do them all the time. What I do expect is that they'll find one that works for them. And maybe it only works for them for a while. And when it stops working, then they can go back to this sort of toolbox of skills and find another one and try that and it's not Pollyanna. Um, here's the Pollyanna thing. How many of you have heard of this book or heard her speak about it, right? So um, Barbara Ehrenreich uh, bright-sided how the relentless promotion of positive thinking has undermined America. So I got the book. I'm three-quarters of the way through it. She's absolutely right <laughs> for much of this. So she's, she starts by talking about her experience having breast cancer and how you know she was diagnosed and people said things to her, this is going to be the best thing that ever happened to you. Or just just be happy. Here, have a pink teddy bear. I mean, that makes me crazy. And, and I'm totally... And she's, you know, she's an excellent writer. So she talks about how she was looking for someone to sort of tell her it was okay to feel crappy. And she would post on these websites and say, you know, I'm really angry and I'm hurt. And the responses she got were like, well, you should go get some therapy because clearly you're really angry. And that's, you know, exa not exactly what I'm trying to fight against. So, you know, whenever I have a journalist call me and want to talk about my work, I always say, you know, it's really important to feel the negative emotions. That's normal. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't feel negative emotions. What I'm saying is you can also have moments of positive emotion and that those moments of positive emotion can help you cope better with the negative. So um, she does get into a chapter where she, I was, of course, I picked up the book and looked in the index to see if I was in it, and I'm not, so that was really <laughs> good. A lot, of, a lot of the people that I cited here today are in it, and she is really critical of some of this research, and I actually think she's a little harsh, and I think she took her sort of journalistic license to really be hard on the, the conclusions that people studying positive emotion and positive thinking are concluding when everyone concludes things that way. I mean, that's just how you do your science. You take your best evidence, and then you sort of try to draw your conclusions based on that, and you give the problems and the weaknesses, but then you make your conclusion. And she really rips into them for making their conclusion that positive emotion is beneficial. Well, I've read the literature. I've done some of the work. It, positive emotion is beneficial. So she's a little harsh there, but you know, it's okay. I recommend the book. I do. Um, thank you. I'm ready for questions. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.